this morning picking up where we left off in John chapter 7. We're moving into chapter 7, the first 10 verses. This is one of those weeks as I'm working on my sermon, you, you know, you, you, I start on Tuesday and reading the passage and getting it into my head and in my heart and praying a little bit and thinking about an outline and, and I work on it a little bit and then I, at the end of the week, Thursday is a real full sermon day, it's when I really get the, the heart of it done. But by the end of the week, there, there are times I wish I had picked a different title, and then when I finish, I wish I picked a different song at the end. But I know we're not equipped yet. You know, part of the projection project, we're going to get a, a better computer so that we can get updated software that will help run it and make things more accessible. Like if I wanted to change a song, you might be able to just pull it down and go ahead and do it. But right now, we couldn't do that. So anyway, we're not going to sing the song I wish we were singing. I don't know why I shared that with you. It's just, I guess, misery loves company. I just want to share my heartaches with you. I think God is, is I went to a conference this weekend with CCEF, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, that was here in Chattanooga. I think we sent out some information. And as a, we wrapped up yesterday, I was wishing that we had done more work pushing that and encouraging you to go, because it was here in Chattanooga. It was not real expensive and it was just phenomenal. I love the CCEF stuff and where they're coming from, the materials that they have available. And I think we'll be putting some of that before you, I guess, in the future to make you more aware. But it was on guilt and shame. And one of the things is I'm looking at the text this morning and, and was thinking about this. And I tried to finish up on Thursday and all through the conference. This stuff is percolating as I'm hearing all about guilt and shame. And I think that, that Jesus is calling us to himself. Come to John chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Hear God's word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I'm not going up to the feast. My time is not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We come as a people who are desperate for Christ. Desperate for a fresh word from your gospel. Desperate for a word of acceptance and grace and mercy. We're desperate for you to draw near and to fill us with your spirit and to work in our lives, to make us more like Christ, more alive, more hungry, more passionate, more like you. Fathers, we come and sit at your feet as we feast on your word. Would you meet us? Would you be gracious toward us? Would you work in our midst? For our good and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one thing is sure, and that is it's impossible to stay neutral about Jesus. It's impossible to stay neutral about Jesus unless you really keep him at an arm's distance and you can 
can adopt some kind of passive posture toward him. But he really doesn't want to leave that option open for us. And we saw this last week as we looked in John chapter 6 and we're reminded of this bread of life discourse that encompasses more than half of the chapter. Jesus is offering himself to Israel as a spiritual savior. He uses a metaphor of spiritual bread as he offers himself to the nation. He wants to be taken by faith as a means of life, as a means of eternal life. He's offering them what every human being wants. Right? We want life. We want life now. We want We want to be happy. We want to be satisfied. We're created with these deep needs and these deep longings. Every one of us wants life. We want it now, but we also want it forever. And Jesus is offering this eternal life, which is is eternal in duration, but also eternal and rich in its depth. A new life, a life stripped of the brokenness of this world. And he offers this, this desperate need that we have for life. You know, we hate death. We hate it. We weep in the face of it. We ache in the wake of it. You know, we fear it for ourselves and for those we love. And Jesus offers eternal life. He offers life to a people that are desperate for it. But he offers it on the condition that we would abandon all other hopes and all other treasures. And that we would take him by faith. That we would take Him as our only hope. That we would take Him as our treasure. That he, would, that he would become God to us and for us. God our Savior. We would embrace Him at the center of our lives and at the center of our beings. And that we would live. But this kind of language and this offer to the world is inflammatory. And we saw last week as Jesus makes this offer, the people are grumbling. The people are disputing. The people are finding this hard to understand, hard to accept, hard to believe. They look at Jesus and they are, they're not believing. They reject Him and many of them walk away. And we see leading right out of that into verse chapter, this chapter, verse 1, that it's impossible to stay neutral about Jesus. He's not leaving that option. In verse 1 we're told that as Jesus went about Galilee, He would not go to Judea. He would not minister there because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. To murder Him, to execute Him. See, when we're confronted with the Jesus of the Bible, there are two options. And one is radical faith. And the other is unbelief. And if we take him at his word, if we hear what he has to say, the biblical Jesus, he does not leave neutrality open. And this morning we see two more groups responding to Jesus' claims as this intensity mounts. And first is this group of Jewish leadership that does not respond with radical faith. They respond just the opposite. They are inflamed by the things that Jesus is saying. Right? They want Jesus dead. They want him silenced. Because for them to accept Jesus on his terms, if they are to accept Jesus and to acknowledge that what he is saying is true, then it radically rearranges their universe, inwardly and outwardly. It radically rearranges their understanding of God and their religion and morality. It radically understands 
changes our understanding of what it means to be related to God, to be right with God, to be righteous. And they think they're righteous. To accept Jesus on his terms is to abandon all other allegiances. Moses must give way then to Jesus. They're threatened by him. They're scandalized by him. They're offended by him. They are indignant at the things that that he says and that he calls them to. And so they're seething with hate. And they begin to plot his death. If what he says is true, it's the end of their religion as they know it. But in the next four verses, we also see that his own brothers are wrestling with his identity. They're not sure what to do with him. Right? And even says, even his brothers... Right in verse 2, we're told that it's about time for the Feast of Booths up in Jerusalem. Right? The Feast of Booths is one of the great, massive feasts of the nation. There were three feasts in the life of Israel that required attendance. Every male within 20 miles of Jerusalem, you know, they set the limit. Everyone within that radius must come. It's mandatory. These are mandatory feasts. But this is one that everybody liked to go to. It's a feast of booths. It's, it's celebrating God's provision for them in the wilderness. And so you'd actually come to, to Jerusalem and camp. Everybody lived in tents and booths, tabernacles. You know, they camped out. But it was also, it coincided with the harvest. And so it was a harvest festival. You know, harvest festivals always mean feasting. You know, it's always, this is a celebration. This is, this is a good time was had by all kind of a feast in Jerusalem. And so everybody is heading up. It's probably the biggest feast of the year in terms of attendance and enthusiasm. And so his brothers egg him on in verses 3 and 4, they say, you know, so his brothers said to him, you know, why don't you leave here and go to Judea? You know, that your disciples can also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, go. Show yourselves Show yourself to the world. Right, they basically, you know, when I hear them saying this, I hear them saying to Jesus the same thing that Jesus says. Don't, don't hide your light under a bushel. Right, go to Jerusalem and let your light shine, Jesus. Go show them what you can do. Go reveal yourself. Do some miracles at the feast. Man, you'll be a star. You'll make a splash. Right, they've seen what he can do. They've seen his power. They don't know how to interpret it. They've heard what he's said, but it is not registered, right? They're thinking of the possibility of fame and perhaps money or power or starting a movement or... We're told clearly in verse 5, even his brothers did not believe in him. They see his power, but they do not follow him. They have not embraced him. They have not yet recognized the light of the glory of God in the face of their older brother. They've seen he's got the abilities. He's seen some unusual things. They're not sure what to do with it. So their encouragement to him is superficial. You know, the tone of what they're saying, sometimes it's hard to get exactly the tone. Sometimes I think they're sarcastic. Sometimes I think it's, you know, the tone I kind of get here. They say, you know, go. If no one works in secret, if he wants to be known openly, right, if you do these things... I almost get the tone of a triple dog dare. You know, their younger brothers egging their brother on, you know, and the, the triple dog, go down to Jerusalem. If you, if you do these works, the passage makes it clear that it's not enough to be convinced of Jesus' power. 
It's not enough to be convinced that he lived and that he had power and that he did wonderful things or that he taught wonderful things. It's not enough. It's not enough to grow up in that same house with him. Right? It's not enough to, to walk next to him and to see these things and to understand them at some superficial level. Something deeper is necessary. Right? Jesus' miracles point to more than power. They validate and they substantiate his claims. They say, I'm telling you the truth. Listen to what I'm saying. It validates and substantiates the claims and the call to faith. To put their trust in him. For those who have eyes to seize, the miracles were meant to lead to a radical faith in his person. But Jesus is not easily manipulated. He doesn't take advice Direction from taunting little brothers. So in verse 6, he's not persuaded, he's not manipulated. Jesus says, my time is not yet come. But your time is always here. Verse 8, he says a similar thing. You go up to the feast, I'm not going up to the feast right now. For my time is not yet fully come. My time is not fulfilled. Most of you have heard sermons that have touched on in the biblical language, in the Greek, there are two words for time. There's chronos and kairos. And chronos has to do with chronology. It's the flow of time. It's, you know, what happens in the course of time and time flows and moves. And so it's this chrono- chronological idea. Where kairos is this, this idea that there, is, there are opportune moments. Right? There are, there are appointed moments times, there are specific times, the Feast of Booths took place in the fullness of time, that is, it's appointment, it's Cairo's time, it's appointed time, the time it was supposed to happen, and, and until the full year had passed, until the fullness of time had passed, for that moment when it was time again, the fullness of time is this appointed time, and Jesus is telling his brothers when he says, my time, my Kairos, has not come, my time is not yet fully come, it's not fulfilled, he's telling his brothers, there's a plan. There's a set order to things. Right? God is at work. There's a timing that must be kept. So in verses 9 and 10, it says, After he told his brothers these things, he remained in Galilee. It seems for a couple of days. The feast is a, probably a week long. And he stays for a couple of days after they head up. And it's not till, till midweek, mid-feast, that he goes up. In verse 10, it says, After his brothers had gone and he waited. It wasn't long for the fullness of time to come for him to go up. But just a few days later, it says he goes up, not publicly, but in private. Right? He goes later. He goes alone. He goes in his own way. He goes at his time. You know, God has this bird's eye view of time. We experience it every moment, and we just see it unfold before us. But God's view of time is not like that. God stands over time. He's not in time. Time is his tool. It's one of the tools that he works with. And God sees time in all of its fullness. He knows the beginning from the end. And he doesn't just see time, but he actually works within time. He plans and he orders all things to fulfill his purposes. And so there in Isaiah 14, it's under your third point in your outline. He says this, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. Right? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. As the Father has planned, so it will be. When the time is fulfilled, I will go. 
right? As the Father has purposed, so it shall stand. I'm not going for a few days because that is, my steps are ordered by the Father. This is profoundly true in the whole life of Christ, right? Put a few verses there in your bulletin just to see the the plan that surrounds what Jesus is doing here. That he is a man of purpose. In 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20, we see it there. It tells us that we are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. He was foreknown, that is, he was ordained before the foundation of the world. But he was made manifest in these last times for your sake. For the sake of you, right? He was known, he was ordained, it was planned, it was purposed before the world was even made. But he was manifest now in the fullness of time, right? That means he was born now. He entered history now according to God's eternal plan, right? We see it in Galatians 4.4, what he's talking about there. He's manifest in these last times when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we see it there. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Right? What is Jesus saying? That as the Father has planned, so shall it be. I follow, my steps are ordered. I follow the Father's plan. I'm, I'm not at the whims of sinful men. So Jesus does go, but he goes in his own time. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection are a pre-planned rescue mission that is being worked, that was planned in eternity, is being worked out in time and step by step moves toward its conclusion and, and the fulfillment of God's purpose in his death on the cross, right, and his resurrection to life. He's a perfect savior, sent forth by God at the perfect time to achieve a Perfect salvation. So 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. See it there in your bulletin. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the kairos. Now is the appointed time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Right? Now is the day to abandon all the other hopes and treasures that we have. Now is the day to take Christ by faith. Now is the day of salvation. To take Him as Savior and King. You know, I read these things and you, 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 you get the sense of what God is doing. And part of us who sit here, who have seen who Jesus is, you know, our eyes are open and we see, when we see Jesus, we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see the Savior, this, the God sent one, who is King, who is God. And and it seems so obvious, at least to me, there are times I, I wonder at the, how obvious it seems to me, and yet how not so obvious it seems to others, right? Why, why would they reject him? Why would they not receive him? Why would they not see who he is and embrace him? And Jesus makes this interesting statement right in the middle of this text that strikes at the heart of the gospel and at the heart of this whole issue. Right in verse 7, right in the middle of his statement about the timing and God's plan and the plans being worked out, and he says, the world can't hate you. I'm not going to Jerusalem. They hate me. They're looking to kill me. They hate you, but here's the reason they hate me. It hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. The world hates Jesus. 
because he tells the world the truth. Right? And the word there that says Jesus testifies about it, the word literally is, is the word that we get martyred from. It means to witness. Jesus witnesses to the world that its works are evil. Right? He testifies both with his words. He says things to these guys that just infuriate them. You know, he tells them the truth and they really don't want to hear it. But he also lives it, you know, in Jesus' life to draw near to Christ. That, that this witness of Christ is both in his words, but also in his whole life. The way he lives and the way he heals on the Sabbath. That sets their view of things askew, but sets them right. You know, when Jesus does what he does, lives how he lives. As they drag a woman caught in adultery to be stoned. And Jesus says, let you who have no sin cast the first stone. And his posture, his witness Sends them scurrying. They all think about it and walk away. Through his words and through his life, he exposes the bankrupt nature of our lives. right? Of, of, of his audience here, but of his audience at all times and all places. He witnesses against us. And everything he says and everything that he is. And that's why they want to kill him. Because if he's right... It exposes just how wrong they are. It exposes just how wrong we are. It exposes the fact that we see, if you look down this passage, he goes to Jerusalem and he does have some conversations with these people who are out to get him. So look at verse 28. He says, Jesus says, so Jesus Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and and you know where I came from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true. And you do not, and him you do not know. Right? You see how that would, that strikes at the foundation. Jesus comes to the most religious population at the time, these powerful people, and he tells them, you don't know God. He pulls the carpet out from under them. Their religion, their morality, he says, is empty and it's corrupt. It's human-centered. It's self-righteous. It's more about you than it is about God. And the revelation is too much. Many of them are walking away offended, as we saw last week, and the powerful among them are plotting his death. But we need to step back again and say, this strikes at the heart of the gospel. Right? It's crucial, because here's what's going on. It's crucial for an understanding of the gospel, because what's happening here is that God is revealing himself to the world in the person of Christ. That's what's going on. God has shown up. And he's in this process of coming to the world in the person of Christ. And he's revealing himself. And what is it when God is revealed to us? What is it that we see? What, what is it that we are exposed to? Right? We're told Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth. And I am the life. I am the light of the world. Right? So we get this, this truth, this, un, this staggering, unrelenting truth of who God is. And it staggers us. He's holier than we ever thought that he was. He is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And the, the light that is expressed in this, right? If you live in the darkness or in the twilight, you never quite get a good look at things. Right? You ever notice that? I go backpacking and we never have mirrors and you know we don't have this and by the end of the trip 
you know, you've slept, you've sweat, you've, you know, done all this, you've worn a hat, you've taken it off, and I have, you have no idea what you look like. And then in that first revelation of looking in the mirror, you're like, oh, my goodness, you know, like, you know, get the grime off your face. When, you, when you're in the darkness or when you're without a mirror, you, you don't get a good sense of what you look like. Getting close to Jesus is like stepping out of the darkness and into a circle of light. Right? And for the first time, these people are getting a look at themselves. Right? The light of, the, of truth is shining upon them in its full glory as Jesus tells them the truth and he lives the truth as he comes and he is literally a revelation of God. He is light. And they step into the circle of light that is around Jesus and they see for the first time so much of what they think is so important is just garbage. So much of their self-righteousness and how good they thought they looked and they get a glimpse at themselves and no, they're in rags, they're filthy. So much that seems so sure. Everything is exposed. Right, Jesus talked about this already in John chapter 3. You wouldn't remember because we did that a couple of years ago. But there it is in your bulletin, John 3, 19 to 20. Jesus says this. This is the judgment. This is what's going down. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness. People love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their works were evil. Right? That's what Jesus just said. I testify, I witness about them that their works are evil. And men love darkness rather than the light. Why? He goes on and says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. They don't want to come into the light. Because coming into the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's what's going on. Exposure. And the world encounters the light that is Christ. The revelation of God, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Everything is exposed. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he gets a glimpse of God and he's in his presence. And he sees the king high and lifted up on his throne. And the first thing he says is, woe is me, I am undone. I've seen the king of glory. And it's about to slay me. Can we stand such... I am undone. He falls on his knees and he says, I'm, a, I'm an unclean man and I live amongst an unclean people. He, see, he steps into the light and he gets a glimpse of his filth and he doesn't know what to do. Until, if you know that passage, God acts for his salvation. That's what's going on in this whole text. Jesus can't help it. He exudes light. Right? He is truth. He, he tells the truth. He lives the truth. He is God incarnate. He is light. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he exposes us. It's expressed in another way there in Hebrews 4. It's in your bulletin. The Word of God is living. Jesus is the Word of God. And the Word of God are the words that He spoke, but it's also the life that He lived and the person that He was. Jesus, the Word of God, He living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of your soul, your soul and your spirit, to the joints of your marrow. What does that mean? It goes deep. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. It exposes you. No creature, he says, is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
morally and spiritually naked and exposed, our hidden motives, right, our true commitments, our hard attitudes, our thought lives, our hidden sins, those things that no one else knows, no one else sees, those things that we carefully tuck away and keep hidden in the darkness. Our deepest shame, our profoundest guilt is exposed before the searching eyes. To step close to Jesus is to step into the circle of this light. It can be a very painful experience. It can be absolutely crushing to see ourselves as we really are. How we trust the wrong things. How we love the wrong things and serve the wrong things and live for the wrong things. And that's what these guys were seeing. They encountered Jesus and they can't, it's too much for them. And they hate him. And they will not accept the truth. They reject the truth. And they exchange it for a lie. And they go on in their self-righteousness in the darkness, in their lostness. The impulse is to run from this exposure, to hide from this knowledge. Right? People love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So they avoid the light lest they be exposed. But I said this was about gospel. Because friends, we don't have to run. Jesus says, I did not come for the righteous. I came to save sinners. If stepping into the circle of his light shows us to be sinners, we've just become eligible for salvation. We have just become eligible for his grace. We have just entered into the possibility of being saved, of being redeemed. Right? Because to stand in the circle of the light that is the presence of Jesus in this exposure and to not run is the beginning of salvation. To face the truth and to be exposed before Him with whom we have to do, with whom we must, before whom we must give an account, and to not run is the beginning of salvation, isn't it? The same moment that He testifies, He witnesses, about our works, that they're evil, at that same moment, Jesus is inviting us to faith. Isn't he? He's saying, come, feast on me. That's the whole bread of life discourse. He just spent, you know, a half hour inviting these guys to come and live. Come and taste of eternal life. I will give it to you. Come and drink, and you will have fountains of living water flowing in you. Don't run from this truth. Don't run from the exposure. Right, The one in whose light is testifying against us, even as we step into that circle and his light hits us and, and exposes us, this very one who exposes all the shame and all the guilt and all that is us, it is the same one who will then take that shame and guilt in his own body and bear it for us on the cross. Right, he exposes it so that we will yield it to him. So we will move towards him. So we won't run and hide. Right? He says if we confess our sins, right? If we come into the light, if we will trust him and not run, if we will be honest with him and not hide, if we will confess our sins, and 
He is faithful. He is just. He will forgive. He will cleanse. In fact, this is the beginning of sanctification because you will not find freedom from that sin. You will not grow out of that sin. You will not find power over that sin while it hides in the darkness. But as it comes into exposure, it is forgiven. It is cleansed in the beginning of the possibility of new life. This is salvation. To be fully known. To be fully exposed. All the guilt. All the shame. And at the same moment. To be fully forgiven. And fully cleansed. Right? Fully accepted. In the beloved. In the one who bore that in his own body on the cross. That we might be set free from it. He exposes us to save us. He says the naked will be covered. Right? The guilty will be Forgiven, the dirty will be cleansed. He testifies to our evil to create a sense of need so that when he says, Come to me, we will run. Right? We will run because he says, Life, health, mercy, grace, forgiveness. Press into his presence, press into the light of the holiness. Do not embrace the light, do not run from this exposure. But day by day, we were reminded at the conference how the first uh, of Martin Luther's 95 Thesis nailed to the door of the Wittenberg church as he's talking about the reformation of the church and recapturing the gospel for the life of God's people. And the first one, which I'm not going to get verbatim, but says essentially when Jesus said to repent, he meant that that the whole of a believer's life would be one of repentance. That day by day we press into the light. Day by day he exposes us and we confess our sins and we find mercy and grace and we cling to the cross. Jesus becomes big. And what he offers us becomes everything. Behold, now is the appointed time of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus says, come. He is light. He is truth. But he says, come and do not be afraid. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we confess that when we come to your word, when we sit at your feet, when we hear your witness, when we see your life, when we see in you the light of the knowledge of the glory of our God, we see holiness, we see righteousness, we see beauty and we see purity and we see everything that we are not. And it does undo us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection that overcomes our death and our guilt. We come to you this morning and we, we would not hide. We would be open and we would be honest. It is in Christ alone that we have hope. It is in Christ alone as we stand in your light, Jesus, that we are saved. Save us. Fill us with your spirit and set us free. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.